incredible opportunity to talk to Jesse Leach of Kill Switch Engage and Times of Grace over Zoom video. So Jesse was born into a religious household. His dad was a minister and he would move around a lot. Born in Florida, but he ended up settling in Rhode Island around middle school, high school years. But he talks to us about how he got into music, the first bands he performed in, and how performing on Halloween night when he was in high school. That was the moment when he knew he wanted to pursue music as a career. He tells us about joining Corinne when he was, I think, 17 years old. The band would have to sneak him into shows. He had like the X's on his hands because he couldn't drink. And when that band ended up kind of fizzling out, that's when Kill Switch Engage was formed. He talks to us about his time in Kill Switch Engage prior to leaving the band and how from there he thought he was going to be done with music. He had a decent job at the time. And it wasn't until he got a call from Adam of Kill Switch Engage to help him on this Times of Grace project that he really got back into music. He talks to us about putting out that first Times of Grace record, working as a bartender when he was asked to rejoin Kill Switch Engage, and a patron at the bar was really the reason he, he went back and, and tried out and joined the band. He told us about where the band was at and where Kill Switch was when the whole pandemic hit and how that also affected this new Times of Grace record, which is their first record in over a decade, and what the future plans are for Times of Grace and touring with Killswitch Engage. You can watch our interview with Jesse on our Facebook page and YouTube channel at Bringing It Backwards. We'd love it if you subscribe to our channel, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Bringing Back Pod. We'd appreciate your support if you follow and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We're bringing it backwards with Times of Grace. So my name's Adam, and this podcast is all about you and your journey in music. And of course, we'll talk about, like I just said, <laughs> the new Times of Grace record. Killer. Yeah, I don't know if you mind talking, because it's all pretty much we're going to just dive into your backstory, if that's cool, and talking about Kill Switch Engage. Yeah, I'm an open book, man, whatever you want. I, okay. I'm cool. <laughs> I'm easy. Cool. I'm easy. Cool, cool. Some people just want to stay away from it, so I don't. I didn't. I didn't know. I just want to ask prior. <laughs> I'm, I'm easy, bro. No cool. Thank you again, Jesse. So first off, um, you're born in Rhode Island, correct? Or raised in Rhode Island? Right. Yeah. Well, predominantly raised. Uh, born in Florida. Oh, interesting. Okay. Then moved to New Missouri, and then from Missouri to Rhode Island, then from Rhode Island to Pennsylvania, then from Pennsylvania to Rhode Island, then from Rhode Island to Wisconsin, then from Wisconsin to Rhode Island, and from Rhode Island to New York. That was my. Oh plan. my gosh! So I was, t- I was totally off. A lot of traveling as a kid. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Was that for parent your parents' work? My father. Yeah, my father was. Uh, following the voice of God, um, studying to be a minister, going to Bible college, taking up uh, callings, starting churches. Yeah, we were, I was a little pastor's kid. Me, my brother and I were like the, the Simpsons kids. Just oh, being wow. pulled along for the, for the journey and singing Jesus loves you the whole way. Yeah, it was a very interesting childhood. How was that? Like, I mean, was it hard to move around like that? And you probably have to, you know, change schools quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, in retrospect, I'm grateful for it because it prepared me for being a total gypsy in life on the road. And sure. I make friends, friends fairly easily because of it. I've had to sharpen my skills, social skills, but you know, there were definitely moments where I was really sad to leave my friends that I just made and uproot, start a new school, the anxiety of all that. Sure, It was, it was, really difficult. Hard. It was difficult, but um, now that I'm grown and I, I look back on it, I'm, I'm grateful for it. I got to see things. I got to move around a lot. 
I'll never be one of those people that's stuck in the same town their entire lives. I don't understand that mentality. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's bittersweet. It's bittersweet. Yeah, I mean, I, I was born and raised pretty much in the same area up until my mid-20s when I moved out for like a few years. So it's like I see, you know, people like you that were able to move around quite a bit, especially in your adolescence. And I like really respect that because I couldn't, I don't know how I'd be able to adapt to that. Like making new friends right away, being the new kid probably quite often, right? Yeah, but I think it also really made me learn to entertain myself. I do really, really well alone. In fact, I think some of the most profound, beautiful moments of my life have been alone. So if nothing else, it did uh, give me a sense of independence. Because even with my brother, like, you know, we got along okay, but then there was a good chunk of time where I just, I couldn't stand him. So (laughs) it made me very independent. And because of that, I think I became very creative too. Mm -hmm. I think I was always creative, but being alone and then like having my own little world, that really, really made me a creative person and a storyteller and a poet and, you know, because it was all just stuff I did to entertain myself because I had nobody. So were you writing always at a at an early age? You talked about, you know, story writing, poetry. Was that something that kind of came naturally to you? Yeah, creative writing was the first thing that I loved. And then I actually started getting into theater and performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when I started experimenting with drugs when I was very young, uh, namely psychedelics, that's when poetry really started to take oh, sure. the front and center and has stuck ever since. It's Poetry is probably my favorite thing out of anything that I do or have done. Um, I absolutely love writing poetry and reading poetry. That's awesome. Have you ever thought about putting out like a poetry book or a book of poetry? Yeah, I've been asked many times uh, to write various books, but um, I don't know, maybe someday. <laughs> it's the amount of work and the amount of headspace I would have to occupy to get that task done seems very overwhelming and kind of triggers my anxiety a little bit. So not quite ready for that one. <laughs> sure. Well, how, how did you get into music? Was it through the church? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> I know I've talked to a lot of people where they kind of was grew up in the church and maybe that was the first time they had a chance to perform in front of people or, you yeah. know, got kind well, of guess, roped guess, into the choir. Or... <laughs> I guess I slightly joke because I guess partially because my father was the music director for a little while when I was younger before he became a full-time minister. So he would play the guitar and sing. I actually know one of his first songs on guitar and can sing it because it was just so ingrained into me. That's kind of cool. That didn't really inspire me to want to do it. You know, that was mm-hmm. just kind of part of my life as a, as a kid going to church. Um, I think for me, it was when, you know, bands like Pearl Jam and Nirvana started to come up, you know, because I was raised on mostly like 60s rock, Simon and Garfunkel, James Taylor, Beatles, the typical stuff. Um, and then, you know, the 80, I loved 80s music. I loved Michael Jackson, Madonna. I was a total 80s kid. I loved all that stuff. But, you know, that was just part of my childhood. It didn't really hit me in the eyes until, you know, I saw Nirvana performing on MTV. I saw Pearl Jam. So that was kind of where the sparks started. Mm-hmm. Um, and my brother was into Metallica and Anthrax. And I got into that stuff as well. And But um, the first band that made me want to pick up a microphone and actually do it um, minor threat. Um, I heard okay. heard them on a mixtape a friend of mine made, and my jaw hit the floor. I didn't understand what I was listening to. It was like nothing I'd ever heard before. The rage, the energy, the just like, what is this? And then I need to do this. This is nuts. What is this? So as much as I loved and was around music and it was always a part of my life, it wasn't until I got into hardcore and punk and more mm-hmm. extreme stuff that I was like, that's, 
okay, that's what I can do. I get that. Did you have to, <clears throat> was it hard to kind of like find your crew? I mean, being moving around quite a bit, was it hard to like start a band or, you know, really pursue that as something that you wanted to eventually do? Yeah. When um, I reached the age of, I think we moved right at 11, 11 and a half into 12, was back to Rhode Island to live with family and sort of put our roots down. And mm -hmm. I think my dad was feeling guilty about uprooting us every two to three years. So I did have a, you know, a, a junior high, high school in the same place. Okay. That's good. And that's when music found me. Mm -hmm. I was, uh, I was a skateboarder kid uh, from the country. Cause before that I had lived in Wisconsin. So I was kind of hickish, you know, I'd kind of looked different, didn't act the same as the city kids, but I was super into skateboarding. Um, so that was kind of my look. It was a, a very confused, like, I don't know, um, hick skateboarder look. Mm -hmm. And I didn't quite fit in anywhere. So I had about a year or so of my life where I was really trying hard to fit in with kids and get into, to, you know, the popular music at the time. And like, I think it was like 91, 92. So, you know, the typical like rap and like just the stuff that was on the charts. I started dressing different because I wanted to make more friends. Mm -hmm. And then I got approached by these two punk rock kids. They would show up to my a volleyball practice because I was on the volleyball team. I was trying just to fit in and be mm -hmm. a sporto and, you know, sure. <laughs> and, you know, impress the girls. I, just, I was lost. I mean, you know, at that age, you just don't really know who you are, but these kids would show up at my volleyball practice and like make fun of me. And I was like, who, who the hell are these kids? Like, why are they bothering me? Mm -hmm. He came up to me one after the, um, one of my practices and this kid, Marco, and he says, Hey man, you used to be a skater used to be cool like what happened to you why are you like hanging out with all these people come come hang out with us man we, we got a band like come hang out in the, and I was like whoa so they're making fun of me because they they were like come back to being a skater come back to being cool right which I thought was you know I was like wow that's awesome yeah I love skateboarding I still love all that stuff I just didn't have any friends that were into it right and those guys they weren't they weren't really coming to, to wanting to hang out with you prior to that like they weren't like yeah. embracing you into their their crew it just oh, sounds like yeah, and some of those kids used to call me a poser when I dressed. They when I used to wear like the Airwalk and Vision Streetwear like shirts. So uh -huh. I felt like they didn't like me. Nobody mm -hmm. liked me, so I got to get in with somebody. But yeah, so once they sort of like were like, "Hey, come hang out with us," and I knew they hung out with some of the older kids, some of the cool kids, the real mm -hmm. punks, you know. So I was I was like, "Yeah, dude, I'll totally hang out with you guys." I quit the volleyball team. I <laughs> I joined their band. We would jam in their basement and then in my garage for like a good year. And then we finally played our first show on Halloween in 1993 at our friend's party. And that was it. I was hooked. I saw the way people reacted. I felt cool. I felt empowered. You know, I found my clique. I found my tribe. And it was at the time, you know, if you looked at the majority of the school of like, you know, two or 300 kids, there's probably about 25 to maybe 30 punk rock alternative kind of kids. And that became my tribe. Those became my people. And it was it was that art class, theater class, and then on weekends going up to shows. That's kind of where it all happened. I found the freaks, geeks, and weirdos, and I'm like, that's me. <laughs> that's I'm my crew. Here. That's awesome. Were you always a singer? Or the yeah, yeah, always a singer. I mean, I I had fun trying to play drums and guitar, and I can I can do it decently now. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I've always just been the guy with the microphone going nuts. Yes. So when you joined the band or when you started hanging out with those kids and, and the band started, you were the front guy? Yes, 100%. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'd call myself the front man because I was very shy. 
I would not make eye contact with the audience. You know, I would just kind of like do the bend over thing where you're like, <laughs> so upset about something. <laughs> sure. that, was, that was like the first couple years of me as being a vocalist. And then when I get into like really hardcore stuff, so I started out with like punk and then it mm-hmm. got really hardcore stuff, like more aggressive um, bands that were doing the crossover thing where they were adding metal riffs into hardcore. And it was the screaming and the yelling was becoming more prevalent. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just like the, you know, the typical yelling of punk rock it became growling and screaming before, you know, we had all these teachers that teach this technique and, you know, death metal was starting to really be, get popular in the, in the subgenres. So extreme vocalists, you know, I didn't have many people to look at and go, I want to do it that way. So I just kind of figured it out. And while I was jamming with that band one day, I stepped on a nail because we were in like this really, my garage was like a dirt floor, you know, planks of wood everywhere. And I was spazzing out and I grabbed this, uh, it's like this homemade palm tree that my uncle had made. I ripped it down. I was like destroying it to be cool during band practice. And I stepped on a nail and I was like, ow. And the way it came out didn't hurt. And I was like, ow. And they stopped and like, do that again, dude. Ow. (laughs) And like press record on the the little crappy four track player. Cause that's what we used to do. Record our practices and try to Uh try to figure what the hell we were doing. And I just kept mimicking that weird noise I was making with a nail in my foot. And that's kind of how I learned how to scream. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> True story, man. True story. That is crazy. Did you have to get a tetanus shot after practice? I had already you know, My mom is a nurse. So I had all my shots. Everything. That's was- good. <laughs> oh, man. Imagine, like, if you would have never stepped on that nail. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's really weird and it's a funny story, but it's it's 100% true. <laughs> oh my gosh. So from that nail, you kind of found your voice. 100% did. Yeah. I mean, it would be a struggle for the next 20 years, but yeah, I found my voice initially from the nail. <laughs> okay. Well, how how long were you in that band for? Oh, I don't know. I'd say maybe like a year and a half and we played that one Halloween show and that was kind of it, you know. It okay. High school band, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then shortly after that one, I had jammed with a couple of kids from high school and we never, it never amounted to anything. And then when I started going out into the city of Providence and discovering a whole other world, you know, when you, I'd go to shows, I'd go with my friends, we'd go home because I was young. Mm-hmm. The moment I started to get freedom and I had a car where I could convince my mom to drop me off, I would start making friends outside of high school, the older kids, mm-hmm. and I'd start going to record shops and places where kids would hang out during the day when they weren't at shows, hanging out with the punks, hanging out with all the freaks and weirdos that were older, that were out in the city. Mm-hmm. That's when I discovered, you know, people, because back then people would put up flyers, you know, with the little right. piece of paper you tear off. Oh yeah. Singer wanted. And it was like the influences were bands I was obsessed with at the time, a band called Bloodlet, a band called Integrity, Earth Crisis. It was all these bands that I was absolutely obsessed with. And those were the, you know, looking for a singer. And I ripped one of those things off. I called this guy, Joe, who at the time was 23 years old. I was 17 and I joined his band, Corinne. And I was the baby. I was the little kid. I was the kid. They were sneaking in the door. I was the kid that had to get X's on my hands because I was too young to drink. Like mm-hmm. my life started at 17 and, you know, weekends I was going down to Virginia playing, you know, animal rights festivals. I was traveling. I was touring. Even before I got out of high school, I was jumping in the van with a bunch of older dudes and doing my thing. And that's really when it kicked off. And I started to actually see money and started to get notoriety. And people knew me as that crazy kid that would drool on stage. It was kind of my thing. (laughs) 
silly stuff, but I, I loved intimidating and getting in people's faces and doing weird shit. Wow. And that rec and that and that band was around for a while, right? You released some records and EP yeah, there's a, and yeah, there's a full CD discography um, if you can find it on the internet. Uh, and there's probably one, I think there's one song you can find on Spotify under the band name Corinne. But um, I'm currently <clears throat> trying to get the masters to actually remaster and release it digitally because I think it's worthy of it. It's an That's cool. Yeah, it's an interesting mix of hardcore, sort of dark ambient, weird um, metal. It's hard mm -hmm. to explain, but it's a real hybrid. But yeah, eventually I'd love to try to get that out. Just it's hard to get a hold of everybody that we recorded with back then because, you know, studios with the little reels and like that. Right. You know, it's not a digital at all. Because that was what the mid nineties. I'm sure a lot of that probably got lost in the shuffle somewhere. Or yeah. oh yeah, yeah. I think the compilation CD came out in '95, and we had already broken up at that point. Oh wow, okay. Yeah, it's difficult to find that uh, that anywhere. But there is one track. I think "Seed of Cain" is the name of the song you can find on Spotify and in any other digital format. That's rad. At least one of them saved, right? <laughs> well. I'm I'm curious to know, like coming from such a religious background and and having your dad such a big part of the church, like was he must have been he was cool with the fact that you're like oh I'm 17 I'm gonna go hit the road I'm gonna be hanging out with these kind of <laughs> degenerate like style kids. Funny, I just talked about this. Um, so I have a podcast called Stoke the Fire with my friend Matt, and we had my dad on. Oh, cool. <laughs> he actually talked about that, and I knew about it kind of but hearing him tell the story from his point of view he pretty much just started to loosen up at that point with his because he was a total totalitarian lawgiver you know hellfire and brimstone kind of guy up until a certain age so i couldn't listen to secular music they had to like if i brought a cassette tape home um you know before cds they would have to go through and read the lyrics oh and screen it yeah, and if I had a parental advisory sticker, which they started putting on in the 80s, I couldn't listen to it. So I would sneak over my friends' houses. I'd watch MTV there because MTV was not allowed in my house. So I got I got a lot of – it was my new drug, you know. I had to go sneak around and find it and get it. And before they knew it, I was obsessed. And then before they knew it, it was like, are you going to support your son and, like, what he loves more than anything? Or are you going to continue to, like, prohibit him? Mm -hmm. so I think they made a decision to like, okay, we're going to support him and allow him to be creative and just hope he makes the right decision. But even when I first started writing lyrics, they wanted to read the lyrics. They wanted to know what I was talking about. And I remember I was purposely cussing in the lyrics because I was like, no, I don't want to do what you're telling me to do. You know, like, right. right. <laughs> but eventually I came around and um, yeah, I, I didn't curse in any of my, like from that band Corinna on to like, even two years ago, I, I never dropped an F-bomb in any song ever. I always tried to write intelligently and, and have a message there. So I think the whole pastor's kid thing rubbed off at least to the point of like, I put messages in my song. You know, I, I talked about love. I talked about different things than bands were talking about in my genre. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the hyper-religiousness, that didn't stay on me. That's not, that definitely not who I am at all. And my parents have loosened up. As much as they're still full-on church-going Christians, they're much more open-minded and supportive. And now they're like huge fans of what I do, which is great. Cool. That says something about you and, and your in your songwriting and just just the fact that you don't have to use cuss words in, in your lyrics to get your point across. I think yeah, that's the first band I did that in is a, my punk band called The Weapon. Um, and I remember doing it on the recording. We're all standing around and 
And I looked at them all. And I was like, oh, that felt good. And they're like, what are you talking about? I was like, this is the first time I've, I've ever cussed in a song. And they're like, whoa, <laughs> it felt good. It's because it was appropriate. I was pissed. It's an angry song. But yeah, that's probably the only project I'll ever do that on. Um, I just don't feel the need for it. You know, I think it takes away from the poetry of it. It takes away from the storytelling personally, at least from, yeah. what, at least from what I've done, you know? And obviously you don't need to do it. If you, you know, the success that you have achieved without doing it, it's like people obviously aren't like, can you believe he's not cussing? Like they wouldn't, you know, it's not even that big of a deal, obviously to your fans. Yeah. I think it's one of those things. If, if it, if it works, do it. If it doesn't, don't force it, you know? And I mm -hmm. just, I never felt like it worked for me. Uh, until you know that that album the weapon album which you can look that up on uh any digital platform um and it's really fast angry punk rock and i think it's appropriate in those songs there you go <laughs> well jesse what did what happened after corinne you said the band broke up around 95. is that when yeah. nothing stays gold started correct yeah that was uh the guitar player from corinne and myself uh started that band and that was very short-lived we played a ton of shows and um yeah that band is just it, we were trying to do something that just wasn't working we mm -hmm. were really blending the melodic and the screaming before we had a real direction of how to do that so it's very jarring we'd go into these almost emo-like parts of the songs and then go right into a screaming part so there was no real crafting of like that particular style mm -hmm. and it's very jarring and you can find that stuff online too but i wouldn't recommend it it's not very good <laughs> learning experience you know sure i mean you got to grow right and then from that so that particular project was put out on a record label called devil's head records which was owned and run by adam d from kills which is brother toby oh okay. so that's kind of the the in but corinne would play shows with adam d's band aftershock and mike d the bass player's band overcast so we were all we all knew who each other were and then when Toby, who had just put our record out and found out that I quit, excuse me, <clears throat> um, found out that I quit, he let Adam know. And Adam was working on a project where he needed a vocalist. And that's kind of where it all started. I got a phone call from Adam and he asked me to work with him on this. He was doing these weird psychedelic Pink Floyd style renditions of Slayer songs. I kid, <laughs> I kid you not, I wish we would have done it and I wish it saw the light of day, but um, it was supposed to be like four or five songs on like a seven inch little vinyl. Uh -huh. He wanted me to do one of them and it fell through, but we stayed in touch. And very shortly thereafter, I got the phone call like, hey man, Aftershock is doing a side project with Mike D from Overcast. Uh, we need a singer. We've been auditioning people and nothing's working out. Would you be willing to drive up to Massachusetts and check it out? So I did. And mm -hmm. I absolutely loved it. We did six songs and then that was it. They asked me to join. And that was before wow. we had a name, before we had anything. And it was, um, you know, Joel was in Aftershock at the time. So it was Adam and Joel from Aftershock and Mike D from Overcast and then myself, the four of us. And that's wow. how Kill started. Oh, interesting. I was wondering how you got up to Massachusetts from, from Rhode Island, how that connection happened, but yeah. there you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I drove to Mike D's house in Worcester and then from Worcester, Massachusetts, we drove another, you know, an hour and a half out to Westfield. So it was a journey for me. And I made that journey at least once a week for a long time. Oh, wow. Cause yeah. you stayed in Rhode Island. Yeah. 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 So oh, wow. every, every Saturday morning I'd leave my house at like 7 a.m. and yeah, we'd, we'd roll up to Joel's house at like 11 and Joel would legitimately roll out of bed, 
He was still at his, and it was at his parents' house. So it was in his bedroom at his parents' house. <laughs> Roll out of bed, kick open his refrigerator, grab a beer, drink a beer. We'd start jamming at like 11, 10 a.m. <laughs> in his room? Yeah. His mom, like, how you boys doing? Uh, <laughs> want some lunch? Like, it, it, yep. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, kind of similar how Times of Grace started as far as like the music goes, right? Adam had some songs and you guys kind of got back together as far as forming. He wanted a vocalist. Yeah. Yeah. He initially, um, so he had written those songs while in the hospital mm-hmm. in London with a back injury. And he didn't feel like they worked or didn't, you know, he just didn't feel like they were kill switch material and he wanted to do something different with it. And he initially was going to do it on his own. It was going to be just his stuff. Mm-hmm. And he felt stifled with his lyric writing and his ideas. So somehow um, I entered his head and that's when I got the phone call. And I want to say 2008, that was where I had been out of kill switch for already, you know, Mm-hmm. chunk of time they'd seen tons of success they've toured the world they become massive and uh you know i had done some touring with my band seamless at the time so i was in seamless for about five years or so uh, which was more of like a, a stoner kind of rock and roll band more like sound garden corrosion conformity caius kind of vibe um that was a whole other lifetime of of learning how to sing and and, and uh learning how to tour again and so that fell, that failed, that failed completely miserably. We, you know, towards the end of our run there, we were playing to like 20, 25 people. Oh, just, wow. It just didn't work out. And mm-hmm. I went home with my tail tucked between my legs to Rhode Island and I couldn't afford my mortgage at the house that I was living in. So I had to sell it and move in with my parents for a year. And uh, I was working as a valet parker, like just at the, you know, my entire life just bottomed out. Mm-hmm. broke uh, $80,000 in debt from that house. Just what am I going to do with my life? You know, mm-hmm. uh, parking cars for rich people in, in Scarsdale, New York. And I get this phone call from Adam and he's like, Hey, I got this thing, you know, it's just going to be a project studio project, but are you in? And from that point, it was like, it gave me this sense of hope and sense of purpose. It, legitimately saved my life, I think, because I was I was on a dark path and I was really depressed and, and self-medicating and, you know, just mm-hmm. going through a rough spot. And that's what started my journey with, with Times of Grace, which eventually just put me back on my feet again as a writer and as, you know, everything just started to come together after that, you know, which it didn't directly lead into, but it, it led into me rejoining Killswitch because I just got my feet back in it. Mm-hmm. Because Killswitch was on a hiatus at the time, you know, when Adam came back in 2009, they put out their self-titled album and things really just started to fall apart with them and Howard. Mm-hmm. And that made way for Times of Grace to be released because that album was done and it was sitting on a shelf, you know. Oh, it was finished, but it didn't, you didn't put it out yet. It sat on the shelf for almost two years. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. We finished it. It was done. Um, Roadrunner Records you know, picked it up and, you know, Killswitch was on Roadrunner Records. Mm-hmm. So we couldn't interfere. Obviously, you, you can't, when Killswitch is doing a thing, there's not going to be any competition. They're not, people aren't going to pay attention to what we're doing if Adam's doing stuff for Killswitch. So because they parted ways with Howard and had that whole thing happened, it allowed Times of Grace to have its moment. Mm-hmm. It allowed us to put out the record. It allowed us to go on tour, which we never even intended on touring. 
for that at all. It was never intended to be a live thing. It was just going to be a studio project that we were going to do every once in a while when Adam had time. So all that stuff just kind of happened like crazy. And before I knew it, I was in Europe playing in front of more people than I've ever played in my life. And the first time I ever stepped foot in Europe was with Times of Grace. Really? You hadn't yeah. been out there before? Well, what didn't Killswitch have success when you were in the band, though, in the beginning? I mean, not, not really. No, I mean, oh. we put Alive Just Breathing out and did a full headline tour in the U.S. Well, not a headline tour, did an opening slot tour in the U.S. And then I bailed. So okay. I never saw success. I never knew what it was like to be on a tour bus. I never knew what it was like to be, you know, signing auto. I didn't do any of that stuff. Oh, see, I was under the impression that because that record did well, right? I mean, it yeah, sold Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, wow. So the first time you, like you just said, the first time you had ever stepped foot in, in there, uh, London and you were playing to these massive crowds because, but I'm curious to know. So he was, cause Adam got hurt, right? He had surgery. Right. So when he, he just stayed there, was he living there or like, how did that? He was stuck there because they had to operate. He couldn't fly back home with that injury. Oh, he okay. was stuck there for, I, I, I mean, don't quote me on this, at least a month just between the surgery and recovery, then flew home. And, you know, because of his surgery, he was able to like move again and he was back, back at it. And the next tour, he was back out. Mm -hmm. So he recovered and, you know, resumed the career. And then, uh, you know, they recorded that second self-titled record and just things fell apart. And mm -hmm. then Times of Grace, it was like, oh, since this isn't working out, Roadrunner Records is like, well, now we'll put out Times of Grace. We're like, let's do it. Okay. Oh, we are going to put out Times of Grace and Killswitch isn't doing anything. What do you guys think of playing some shows? Whoa. Okay. I, I guess, but I have a job. And then it was like when the record label stepped in and gave us our advance and, you know, basically it was like, hey, you know, what? actually right around the same time. No, I'm getting my time. time I take reverse. So. <laughs> Because of the advance that I got from my publishing, which I'd never gotten any of this stuff ever. I didn't know. I didn't know there was money in this. I mm -hmm. really was ignorant. I had enough money where I could b buy a new car and quit my job and actually just focus on times of grace. And that's when I just, I quit my job and it was like, I started to rehearse with the band and I bought myself a new car and it was like, whoa, this is my life now. And oh yeah, our first, you know, we're going to go over to Europe and play the festivals and gonna go to Germany and it was just like this it all just happened so quick it was crazy wow tell me about that moment going into your job and saying hey I'm back I'm, I'm doing this I'm doing music again see you guys later <laughs> I still have the photo somewhere um I so I worked so that particular job that I was parking cars at I was there for four years in four years I worked my way up to upper management so oh, wow I went from the valet to sitting in on meetings with, uh, you know, the board of trustees and the doctors of a medical facility um, and being a partial manager, dealing with ordering of the medicines, dealing with people's schedules and, uh, you know, they're uh, punching in, punching out and payroll. So I was like a full on suit. Yeah, you had a pretty important job, it sounds like. And from valet to like full on suit. So I had my own little office, my own little cubby hole. You know, people knew my name. I'd walk around and go to the different offices. Everybody knew who I was. Uh, and they all knew I was a musician. People kind of knew. But, you know, you forget that when you're there for four years. People are like, he's just that guy that's you know, helps out the, the CEO. Mm -hmm. So when the time came and I gave, I gave a good month's notice because I knew my jobs 
plural had to be filled by people to do because I did a lot there. I took on a lot. Yeah, and I remember I shaved my head into a mohawk, and I just I wore, started wearing a cap. And I remember one of the doctors being like, "You're always wearing that cap." I'm like, "Yeah, because I'm out of here." And I pull, <laughs> pull it off, and he's like, "Oh, interesting." And I was like, "Yeah, I'm counting down the days." And I had this photo; it was my calendar that I used to use for scheduling, and it was these red X's, and on the bottom it says, "How many days till freedom?" So every single day, I would exit, 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 and then I went into my little cubby hole with the. Um, what do you call those things that surround a desk um, in the corporate building? God, Your cubicle? Yeah, I went to my cubicle, right, with my my screw gun because I also did fix-it stuff. You know, okay. if somebody had a chair, office equipment need building, I was that guy too. So I took the screws in my thing and I loosened them up everywhere. And on that last day, my boss came over and they're all like, everyone's like, congratulations. And I kicked all the walls down. <laughs> I, I took my arm, took my arm and like over my desk. Like in a movie. I, I legitimately did all those things and everyone was laughing, thought it was funny. And I'm like, I'm out of here. I'm going on a plane and I'm going to Europe and I'm I'm done. And that was it. I haven't worked a regular job since then. That's incredible. Actually, that's a lie. The Grace existed for a while. And then Killswitch was supposed to come back mm-hmm. and write a record because they you know, were trying to work things out with Howard. So there was a good year there where I had to go back to work. Oh, okay. Because you weren't sure what was going on with, with Killswitch. Yeah. Times of Grace was put to the side. Killswitch was given a budget for the new record, which would become Disarm the Descent. Um, so they realized it wasn't working out with Howard. And they parted ways and that's when i got the phone call do you want to rejoin the band i at the time was working at a bar in new york city uh, and i said no i said i i can't see myself singing howard's songs and to me in the back of my mind i'm like i want times of grace to continue man i mm-hmm. love times of grace like why are we not doing times of grace so i selfishly was like no i don't i don't want to sing for kill switch i want to continue doing times of grace so mm-hmm. I, in my mind, I'm like, I'm just biding my time. Like, hopefully Killswitch is just going to go away then. <laughs> and then. Yeah, you guys could take over. <laughs> so then I hear they're going to hold auditions. And I remember getting a, a, a text message from a friend of mine uh, in my band Empire Shall Fall at the time, because I had started Empire Shall Fall while I was working at that medical facility. So weekends, I was still playing shows. I was still, oh, like, okay. still dipping my toes in. Uh-huh. Um, so I got a text from the bass player there and he's like, dude, did you hear they're auditioning for like a third singer? And I was like, oh man, that sucks. Third singers never work out. And then I'm thinking to myself, should I just give this a shot? And that night at my shift at the bar, this kid came in, he sat at the bar. And at the time I was bar backing, I wasn't even a bartender. I was training to, cause it was one of those cocktail bars where you've got to like make everything look really nice. Oh, sure. It wasn't just like some dive bar. You'd be pouring beers. <laughs> I had to study gin. I had to study whiskey. We had to know where they came from. So when someone sat down at our bar and you ordered a particular gin, we could tell you the botanicals. We could tell you where it came from as we're crafting this beautiful cocktail, which just, it looked a certain way. So it was one of those high end places. So I was yeah. training. And in my mind, like, yeah, I'm going to be a professional mixologist. That's my thing. So that was the path I was on. So before my first shift as an actual bartender, um, which I believe was going to be the next night, this kid came in, he sat at the bar and he's like, you look really familiar. And I'm like cleaning the glasses and organizing and the bartenders are like kind of chuckling. <laughs> Weren't you the singer for Kill Switch Engage? And I'm like, oh. He's like, yeah, yeah, I used to be. He's like, what the hell are you doing here? Like cleaning glasses. Like what? 
what he was just so baffled that I was doing this job and his reaction, whoever this person is, I got to thank him. I don't even know who this person was, but uh, I remember sitting there and I'm cleaning the glasses and I got that text message from my friend. And I just remember thinking to myself, yeah, what am I doing? So I texted back and I, I texted their management who, who I'd still kept in touch with. And in my mind, my gears were turning. I'm like, I'll go audition for this thing. Maybe we can do like an elaborate breathing reunion tour. And then maybe I can work on the new record and, you know, maybe it'll be cool. We can work it out. So I texted the managers and they're like, all right, what do you want to do? You said no. So you can't just walk back in. You got to like. Oh, they made you go through the process of auditioning again. I said, okay, well, put me on the list to audition. Put me last. So they audition everybody they need to do. I'll come in last. And what do they want me to do? You know, I know my material. I'll start working on the elaborate breathing stuff. And I was like, no, well, if you're going to do this, they don't want to just do your songs. You have to learn some Howard stuff. So I was like, oh, man. Okay, so what's the list? They sent me a list of stuff that was necessary for the audition. And that's when I was like, all right, I think I can do this. It beats bartending. It beats all this stuff. So I, the next day I go in um, and I start learning the stuff. And within two weeks, the audition was in two weeks. So I had to get somebody to cover my shift to go do the audition. <laughs> I had my, my work uniform on and everything. Like I had left, went to do the audition. We had so much fun. Uh, I learned, um, I think Arms of Sorrow was the first song I really connected with and was like, oh, I can do this. This song is awesome. I really enjoy this. I connect with the lyrics. I, I can embody this and make it my own and feel like I'm not going up there being a cover singer. Mm-hmm. And then eventually I learned, I, went, I think I learned like eight of his songs and then eight of mine and uh we jammed we had fun and they were you know they started early in the morning and i came in last so they were pretty exhausted when i walked in the door but you know three or four songs in you could feel the energy you could feel everyone was smiling and like we were joking and it just felt right it felt good mm-hmm. when we were done i sat them all down i was like look i know i turned this down i know i quit before if you give me a chance i won't let you down and you know i know you got this album like musically done i'll work on the record while we tour like whatever you need me to do i'll do it let's go and like all right we'll we'll we'll, we'll call you we'll let you know so i left i went home went to sleep and i woke up to a voicemail and it was their management vaughn and he says hey you know give me a call back gonna talk to you so call back and he's like you might know what i'm gonna say right now but i'm gonna say it anyway uh, do you want your, your fucking job back or not, bro? <laughs> I was like, hell fucking yeah, I do. Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> and then I went to my my job the, the next day. I walked in with this shit-eating grin on my face, and I went up to the beverage director who was preparing me for my first shift as bartender. Oh, so you finally got to move up from bar back. <laughs> Trained up. Like, I did all this training. They invested all this time, you know, like – I was going to be the new guy. And I said, you know, the other guy we've been working with too, because there was another guy who was training with me. I was like, he, he might be the guy. What are you talking about? He's like, yeah, I got the job. He's like, oh, that's awesome. But oh no, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? So he like disappears. He, he goes and makes some phone calls. He comes back and he goes, you're fine. We'll, we'll have the other guy, Daniel, take, take over. He's, he's ready. So this is it. You're done. You're good. And um, the 
owner and the chef came up and we all did shots. I ripped my shirt off. I threw it into the trash. And- <laughs> you knocked all the drinks down. Like you yeah, right. I did a circle. <laughs> I drank them all. Is what I, I hammered. And then I woke up the next day and that was, that was the last job I ever worked. Wow. Wow. And then, I mean, Howard pretty, he co-signed on what you were doing too, which is probably a, a validating moment, I would think. Right. Eventually he did. Yeah, we didn't have any contact. I mean, I didn't really even know him. He was in, he was, so when I was in that band, Corinne, way back, uh-huh. he, was, he was in a band called Driven. Uh-huh. We used to play shows together too. So I always knew him as that awesome gospel-y sounding singer from that band, Driven. Mm-hmm. He was a super friendly guy. Um, but I didn't know him personally. I mean, I knew Blood Has Been Shed. We played shows with him, with Killswitch. Um, so yeah, me walking the situation and, you know, there's a lot of things that were left unsaid and those guys weren't in contact with him. So mm-hmm. there was a, a couple of years there where Howard was like the, the ex-wife, you know, like they're always talking about the ex, the ex, and it was just like draining and like, oh, the, the weird few years of them sort of getting over a lot of stuff. And then finally they started to squash it with him and, mm-hmm. you know, just realized, cause listen, you get older, you let things go. And I'm so, sure. I'm so grateful for that because there's nothing worse than that band that constantly talks about their ex lead singer because everybody does it. And those mm-hmm. guys never publicly did it. They never trashed him. They never did any of that stuff and vice versa. Mm-hmm. A lot of respect. So once that was all sort of healed up and then he started doing devil, you know, and then, you know, he actually showed up to a show. So it was a very slow process. Okay. The first show that he showed up to, you know, invited, we invited him out and he came out and hung out. He stood side staged and watched. And I was so nervous and so anxious, like, oh, this guy's going to watch me butcher his songs. Great. Here, here we go. <laughs> yeah, that must have been terrifying, yeah, I would imagine. It was, man. Um, and then, you know, he just gave me a huge hug when I came off stage. He's like, you killed it, bro. You did really good. And I was like, really? Yeah, man. And then, long story short, we hung out that entire night. He came on our tour bus and we became very fast friends. Realized we had a lot in common, a lot of musical stuff we enjoyed. And yeah, he basically was like, I'm proud of you. And then we talked and I vented to him about my frustration. I was like, dude, I can never live up to your voice. Like, fuck you, man. You're too good. (laughs) So annoying. Like, I try so hard. He's like, you're doing great. Knock it off. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to give it right back to you. When you quit, I had to like live up to Elijah's breathing. I didn't write any of that stuff. He's like, that was hard. He's like, so fuck you back. Shit is hard, man. We, it wasn't easy for me. He's like, you're not the only one that had it hard. Right. We had a really good laugh about it. And then, um, you know, we put on some hip hop on the bus and bumped everybody out. <laughs> no one in Killswitch really likes hip hop except for me. And Howard does. So it's like, sure. automatically was like, my man, yeah. Let's, let's <laughs> and then, um, you know, I had a real deep heart to heart with him. And then he played me early demos of that first Light the Torch. And I just looked at him and was like, dude, this is it. This Light the Torch is it. I, I like Devil You Know, it's good. But that first Light the Torch to me was like, he's back. Like he's back in full effect. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I just started like posting about his band, wearing his t-shirt, supporting him. And it just cool. shortly became like, we're family and we're mm-hmm. going to have him out on stage and he's going to sing some stuff with us and we're going to make a song with him. And that was it. It was like, we're making a song. We're going to just squash anyone who's talking shit or thinks we have beef. Let's make it public. We're mm-hmm. cool. And it's been awesome ever since. 
I love that. I had a chance to actually interview Howard about Light the Torch and their new record. And he's just such a sweet guy. Like, I can't imagine him being like, you know, butting heads or anything kind of with you. I, yeah, just, I think you know, he, the, the whole like um, what he was going through, he just lost himself, man. That's mm-hmm. all it was like. You think about like their rise to 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 notoriety and fame. Killswitch was huge at one point, right? Oh, like, yeah. Huge. I mean, Grammy, you know, Grammy nominated and everything yeah. else. So, um, yeah, I was nominated twice, by the way. I know you were, but I'm just saying, well, we're talking about his. I'm just kidding. I'm totally <laughs> I did it for a laugh. Um, I know no, you did. But... <laughs> I, think just, I think it's just you get caught up in the lifestyle. You get caught up in what people are saying about you, and it's really easy to lose yourself. And I think all those guys got a little mixed up for a while there. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to happen. It even happened to me a little bit when I first got back in it. You just like, you're so wowed by the lifestyle. You're so wowed by people telling you you're great, and you kind of get caught up in it. And then, you know, you have hard lessons or, you know, you have a moment where you're like, wow, I'm really not as cool as I think I am. Like, calm down, dude. You got a long way to go. So that's mm-hmm. been my road. But yeah, it's been great to reconnect with him. And yeah. Fire was like, I was going to say, I love that video. Just like you guys, you know, interacting in the music video and like you do the fist pump. Like you could yeah. just tell there's like so much love there. I love that. I love that video. That's one of my yeah, favorite we, ones. There's a lot of jokes, a lot of happiness. And then Ian McFarlane who directed that was kind of the brains behind some of that stuff too. Just cause you know, he's behind the camera looking at like, this is how it's going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, that if you were to walk on that set and be in that room, it was a super fun vibe. Everybody that was there was like, this is awesome. It's going to be cool. Yeah, you could tell that there's just there's this cool energy when you watch the music video. Yeah, I remember standing behind the camera when it's panning to Howard sitting there and he grabs the mic and I got chills. I'm like, people are going to love that shot. That's so cool. (laughs) It is amazing. Um, I want to talk to you now about obviously uh, the new Times of Grace stuff. But I'm curious to know where were you at when the whole you know, world shut down with the pandemic. And was that kind of a reason why you guys started Times of Grace again? Or like, tell me about that. Once again, Times of Grace album was written. Oh, completed, ready to like pretty much ready to go. I'd say before the pandemic hit. So all the vocals were done. Everything was tracked. It was done. We had been working on that thing for five to six years in between touring and our schedules. So the album was done. Uh, and then when the pandemic hit, you know, we sort of shopped around for a label to see if there was any interest, decided to go with, you know, um, a distribution company, ADA, where we would retain all rights and ownership and they would just help us promote and put it out. And then Adam remixed the album uh, seven or eight times. He reamped stuff. So he was doing all this crazy tweaking. We got it mastered. And then, you know, when we decided to put it out, it was another couple months. So had it not been for the pandemic, this album wouldn't be coming out. Um, it would probably not come out till next year because when the pandemic hit, we were on tour promoting Atonement. It was our first uh-huh. headline run with Light the Torch on the bill, uh, August Burns Red. We were on day two of that tour and day three, we got sent home. So where were you guys when? I'm we, sure were, how, yeah, we were a day off in, um, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So we were all just enjoying our day off in, in Pittsburgh and getting ready to go to Philadelphia to play the next show. And uh, that next show didn't happen. And did you then, know it was like, there was, I'm sure there was like whispers of what was happening. Like, did you notice uh, that at all at the shows, the two shows prior? Like, no, you know, you no, didn't know, it was full, full people. Nobody was like, 
worried yeah. about it at this point. And I had previous to that tour, I had just taken my first real vacation in my entire life. And I went to Thailand for a month and over in Thailand, there was even with the coverage and stuff going down, there was zero, like nobody was even worried about it. We were down in, in the islands, you know, and there's, it was no, we didn't even know until we got to the airport to fly home, my girlfriend and I, when we saw people wearing masks and it was like the, the fear was starting to happen, the panic. And even then I was like, ah, I'm sure we'll be fine. It's, oh, it's always different in the States. You know, all this, all these pandemics and things happen other where other places. They don't, right. it doesn't they happen never at home. Us. Yeah, it doesn't, <laughs> yeah. Never shut us down in the past. It's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when it did, it was like, okay, this is going to be a couple of weeks. We'll reschedule. It's going to be fine. No big deal. Mm-hmm. And then when that didn't happen, it was just like, wow, now what? And right. Then, yeah. And then a few weeks, you know, a few weeks pass and it was like, oh, well, at the very least, let's start figuring out times of grace. If we're just sitting around with our thumbs in our asses, let's put out a record. <laughs> Screw it. Yeah. It was a so half accident. So that's kind of what, yeah, really lit the fire under you guys to, to push the, push out the record then. Yeah. We realized that we weren't going on tour anytime soon. So let's just do it. It's now or never because once we go back on the road, come September, kill switch is going to continue promoting atonement again. So mm-hmm. we've got this window of time to get this out and give it a proper rollout. Um, as far as like playing out, I don't know what's going to happen with that. There's talk of it, but once this world allows us to get back out there, which it slowly already is, mm-hmm. Kill Switch has got a lot of stuff to do before sure. Times of Grace is able to do anything. I would imagine. But at the very least, the album will be out. Hopefully, people will like it. So when the time comes for us to play a show, there'll be interest for it, you know? Yeah, I love it. I mean, I love the new the new songs that you've put out so far. And I love that you put out The Burden of Belief as kind of the first one and how much different it is than traditional songs, even from Killswitch, obviously. Yeah, that's intentional. I think we put that one out first because we wanted people to know this is a different one. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, there's more of that mellow. I, I would say there's even more mellow stuff than that one. There's, there's some really quiet tracks and I love it. Uh, to me, it just stimulates a different part of my brain and uh, you know allows Adam and I to have more creative uh, expansion just it's there's no real rules with this no real expectation and mm-hmm. it's been 10 years since our last record so people can't expect it to be the same thing it's just it would be so boring to me and i i'm kind of tired of doing the same thing with kill switch we've got our signature sound we kind of stay within yeah kind of confines of who we are and and to me that's that gets exhausting so mm-hmm. this is a nice outlet and it just gives freedom to like just not worry about a genre or a sound and put out a soft sounding song with some piano in it and put out a song that's kind of rock country stoner you know like just mm-hmm. who cares we do what we want awesome. <laughs> i love it yeah it's a great record i mean your voice is so good that it you can you can sing sing it's not like you need to do the screaming all the time and and you don't even in kill switch yeah it's it's funny man i've been doing screaming since i was you know 17 16, 17 years old. And since you stepped on that nail. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I, you know, I do like it, but my real, now that I've just, especially after the vocal surgery in 2018, when I had to go get nodules taken off my, my throat. And I truly thought for about three months I was done. Mm-hmm. The doctor couldn't reassure me like when we're done with this, you may That's not be scary. Yeah. So then I took vocal lessons and learned how to sing again with Melissa Cross. And then my voice was doing things I could never do before because I always had these nodules. I didn't know it. 
So I'm going to sing live and I'm going flat and going sharp and you know, there's YouTube evidence everywhere. Like I'm just, I'm not the greatest, most controlled singer live. And it was because I had these nodules for all this time. So now that I finally have the freedom and I do have vibrato and I'm starting to learn how to sing properly, I want to sing more. Mm-hmm. So like moving forward, I'm really looking forward to figuring out my voice and going with times of grace. It allows me to go into my lower register, which is a rounder part of my voice. It's just, to me, it sounds better. And I feel like as I get older too, it's just, it's more comfortable. So the higher stuff that I do, I'm trying to do it less. The screaming that I've been doing, I'm trying to do it less. And with times of grace, it just, it allows me to just flex another side of my voice. Mm-hmm. And I love that. To me, it's exciting to explore different parts of my voice that I've really not been able to do. So I'm looking forward to more of that across the board, just taking my voice in different directions and not leaning on what I've been doing for so long, you know, and expanding my, my repertoire as a vocalist. Do you feel like that kind of sparked the We Carry On, it's like the acoustic version of that song you guys did for the quarantine? Absolutely, yeah. I love that version. I think it's so rad. I mean, it says so much about not only you as a vocalist, but the band being able to trans, like reimagine, yeah. you know, a, such a heavy kill switch song into this beautiful piano acoustic. It's, I love it. Yeah, I was really inspired by this guy too, who does this thing on, um, he's, he's on YouTube, Chill Switch Engage. He's got, <laughs> he's got like a million views. He, he does piano covers of uh, Kill Switch songs. And I was inspired by that as well. I've actually reached out to that guy and talked to him and told him like he's done a great job. So anyone listening there, go to look out chill switch engaged he's a brilliant piano player and he reimagines all kill switch stuff with this really cool piano style i love that and i love the song that you guys chose i mean what a perfect you know song for we uh, were yeah yeah right <laughs> we did it bro <laughs> yeah i mean right up the middle it's perfect but um so obviously times of grace records coming out what next friday wow yeah, is it? Is it next Friday already? Isn't the sixteenth? <laughs> yeah, it is the sixteenth. I don't know what day it is, dude. <laughs> I've been in this weird time warp. Right, it's still twenty twenty or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? The walls around me, dude. I'm stuck in the void, bro. I've been doing this for days, just talking to people about the record. I don't know what day it is. <laughs> I'm not even joking. I don't know what day it is till you just said that. That's so funny. Where's my, where's my phone? What is today? It's the eighth. It's the eighth. <laughs> Just so you know. Which I was joking. I am not. <laughs> anyway. Wow. Well, it sounds like, so you said there's a lot more mellow stuff on the record. I mean, the three songs you've put out kind of, it kind of builds. I mean, the most recent one's pretty heavy. Yeah. There's a mixed so- bag of stuff, you know, and, and there's actually even songs that didn't make the record that are heavier. Um, we specifically kept them off because we wanted this album to, first of all, be cohesive, but second of all, take people on a different journey, mm-hmm. you know, and hence the title. It's really, we took the songs that worked best with that theme and and we did a lot of wrestling with that. That was months of us song order, which, you know, what goes first, what stays on. And the song Rescue, which, you know, we just premiered fairly recently. Um mm-hmm. That wasn't even going to be on the record because it didn't fit so well. Because it's a heavier song, right? It's I heavier, mean, that's, that's it's a heavy. little, yeah, it's a little more like the first record. Um, it's super positive, kind of, because it's about love and about like finding your way again. Um, but after listening to the album without that on it, and I was rooting for that song from the beginning because I love that song. It's it's about me and about what I went through and about my girlfriend and my relationship, and you know, it's a love song. 
And mm-hmm. I've never really written a blatant love song. And I did. And I'm like, I'm proud of it. It's like, this is cool. And it adds such a different air. It's almost like a break. It's it's like this little beacon of light amidst this dark record. Uh, and then Adam was like, you know what? Yeah, I want that song on the record. Let's put it third. And I was like, whoa, that's jarring. He's like, no, it's cool. <laughs> and then we listened to it in that order. And I was like, yeah, that it's it's such an interesting way to do it. And then from there, it kind of all goes downhill, like emotionally wise and goes very dark and very mellow. But yeah, I think you're going to go on a ride. I'm proud of it because it's like a journey. You're on a sonic journey. No, no song sounds alike. They're all different. And the heavy element that does come in, like on a song like Far From Heavenless, which I believe is like right in the middle of the record, mm-hmm. it's more of a slow, mid-tempo, epic, wide open kind of post-metal heavy. It's n- There's nothing really fast-paced or like, blatantly within the genre of metalcore or kill switch style all the quote-unquote heavy stuff is is more slow and driving and lyric wise and topic wise it's heavy but sonically on a whole it's very diverse that's incredible i can't wait to hear it because like it is very different and the first song you guys put out like i said it's it just sets this tone like a totally different tone for for the band and, and the sound i like i really like it yeah we're embracing more rock more blues mm-hmm um you know more sort of like sludgy stoner rock post metal type stuff and then there's even like touches of like you know indie rock in there too like i just there's nothing off limits so i think it's you know if you're a fan of times of grace you're gonna like this record or maybe love it and even if you're not a fan or don't even know who we are i think it's gonna bring in newer fans as well Mm -hmm. i think we wrote the songs where they're to me they're creative and they're honest and they're real but they do have a pop appeal. Some of them do have like pretty hooky stuff, but it doesn't feel like radio rock. It doesn't feel like, oh, this, you guys did this just to get on the radio. I don't think there's any of that. And we intentionally were like, no, we're gonna, we're gonna do stuff that's catchy, but not cheesy. Sure. This, this project is very serious to Adam and I, we put our heart and soul into it. So I'm proud of it because I do think the songs are gonna stick in your head, but you're not gonna feel like, oh, this is like the format of radio, here we go, great. Mm-hmm. There's none of that in my mind. Some people uh, might talk about it on their message boards or YouTube or whatever. I don't care, but right. Who cares? <laughs> so we're very careful to keep it very artistic and creative. You know, I love that. I can't wait to hear the whole, the whole record. Um, and thank you so much, Jesse, for, for doing this, for taking so much time to talk with me. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for promoting this, this album and just, you know, supporting me really it goes both ways i appreciate yeah. you taking your time as well man i love it and i do have one more question for you before i let you go um i want to know if you have any advice for aspiring artists you gotta love what you do you gotta love it with all your heart and soul because um it's not easy it's never easy um and you've got to take your lows and your highs in stride you know once you start seeing success and you're doing well realize that that is fleeting so be very humble don't step on anyone's toes on the way up because on the way down, they might catch you and help you back up again. It's one of the hardest professions to really get into and go into, but it can also be one of the most rewarding professions to get into. So if you're gonna, if you're attempting to do it, make sure you love it for the right reasons. Cause if you're in it for the money, I got news for you, man. <laughs> it's, it's the wrong profession. Uh, <laughs> if you're in it for the fame, it's going to be a weird kind of fame. And uh, it's just not worth it unless you really love it and you're in it for the right reasons. Um, and then if that's the case, know when to pick your battles. You know, they always say never give up, and I don't say never give up. 
I say, just give it your all, give it your best, but learn to choose your battles and learn to know when things aren't working out and when you need to move on to something different, whether that's a different band or a different project, or maybe even a different career. Just, it's a hard road to navigate, but it can be the most amazing thing you've ever done. So good luck and confidence with that. 